PT Pro Talk Podcast, the fastest way to increase your knowledge with the brightest minds of physical therapy in your pocket. Welcome to PT Pro Talk Podcast. I'm Mariana Tondo, your host for today. In this episode, Gary Dykes will talk about differentiating between the lumbar spine, SI joint, and the hip. Gary is part of the McKenzie Institute faculty since 2005. I hope you enjoyed the show. Range Master has been specializing in professional grade at home and in clinic rehab tools for almost 30 years. All of their products are available through distributors at rangemasterpt.com and on Amazon. So either you stock items or refer patients to buy online, they've got you covered. One thing I love about Rangemaster, they offer all physical therapists free samples. Get yours today by going to rangemasterpt.com and click get a sample. Hi Gary, welcome to PT Pro Talk. How are you today? Doing well, how are you? I'm doing well. So let's jump right into our questions. It took us a little bit to get this going, so I'm excited to talk about uh, hips, SI joint, lower back, and more things. So just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how did you get to where you are right now? Yeah, it, you know, it seems time has really flown by since I got started in this, and that was in, I got out of school in 96. Um, and then pretty quickly after that, I realized that I was very frustrated with my ability to um, assess musculoskeletal problems, in particular lumbar problems. And I can remember those patients making me very frustrated and uneasy. And so then, you know, again, my course was, again, I tell people all the time by chance. So I feel very, very, very fortunate to be where I'm at right now because I feel like I would, for some reason, was steered that way but it wasn't because of my knowledge. Um, I took the first lumbar course I could get to um, in 1997, and that was only because it was in Atlanta and it had nothing to do with McKinsey. Um, and, and so it could have been a Maitland or a Paris or a whatever course. I just knew I needed to know more about something. And so when I went to that course and I listened to what was you know, being said and how they assess patients. And I, I think the assessment of the patients and, and realizing that, and it was Mark Miller's course then, it was in 97, realized that he was having a conversation that meant something with the patient. And I thought, wow, that's what I don't do right now currently. So I need to know how to do that. And so from that point forward, and there was some little hiccups here and there, but from that point forward, I knew there was more I needed to do better. And that was the way I wanted to do it. And so from that point, I think through 2001, I think is when I took my credentialing exam um, in Ottawa, Canada. And that was where our conference was <laughs> scheduled to be over the past two years. And unfortunately, we have not made that trip because of COVID. Um, and I think we're all looking forward to that face-to-face -face time again sometime soon. Um, and, um, and then shortly after that, you know, or, or right after that, as soon as we took the credentialing exam, Uh, signed up for the diploma program and went to my residency in Texas, Austin, Texas in 2002 and uh, passed the diploma exam in 2003. And that was a really fun trip too. That was to Rome, Italy to do that. So uh, the traveling is always oh, a nice cool. perk, right? Yeah. So yeah. it's fun. And so it's been a nice course. Uh, yeah. I look back on that and think, man, wow. You know, if you had drawn that up for me, I, I'm not sure I would have really believed it. Um, but it was really a, a fun thing. And, and since then, you know, 
I've been in faculty. Again, these things kind of fell into place. After the diploma, there was a there was I think an uptick or a need in the institute for instructors. I knew I had something that I always wanted to do and enjoyed doing, which was teaching others, like talking, interacting with people. And so I thought, well, I'll give this a try. And so I signed up to you know be considered for faculty, and that started I think in 2005 probationary, and then now here we are in 2021, and it seems like yesterday. Uh, but a lot of great, great, great fond memories, you know, over those years. So, yeah. So that's crazy. Everything happened so quick. You just yes. left college and then it started and then the credentialing and then the diploma. You were like, you didn't waste any time. Yeah. It sounds like I had a plan, but that wasn't yeah. the case. There was no plan. It just happened. That's, so it's good. Yeah, that's awesome. Everything back to back to back and you're yeah. done. We're a fac faculty. <laughs> yeah. So, it was, you know, I met some really great people along the way, like Christy McGuire and Dave Oliver and Cora Tone and all those guys, John Weinberg. Um, and I know I'm leaving folks out, so I apologize for that. But, um, you know, and not to mention our mentors that we all look, for, look you know, look up to. And that's, you know, you know the, the senior faculty to me. And, uh, man, everybody's just like family. So it's fun. That's awesome. Um, so now... Uh, let's talk about uh, differentiating between lumbar spine, SI joint, and the hip. So we know sometimes it's confusing to differentiate them. So from the subjective history, what are the signs that help you to differentiate? You know, the, the, the biggest thing there, I think, and I always try to push this, you know, on courses is early on, you need to look and do a very thorough job of establishing the body diagram. And so the body diagram is probably your first best indicator um, that you may you know, have some information from, which means, okay, so if you're looking at uh, SI joint joints and then you consider hips and you, so you have a, a you could have a, a, you have a bilateral or you have two of those things to consider. Those usually have symptoms that are unilateral. So you'll see something on one side versus on both sides or certainly not in midline. So if you go to a lumbar complaint and someone's, you say, okay, where are your symptoms? Commonly, they're going to tell you where they hurt the most or have the most symptoms, which is, okay, let's say right side, low back. Okay. Well, first thing that pops in your mind, I can remember back when I was in out of school, I would, first thing I would think is probably SI because that's where it hurts. But then if you ask the next question is like, is there any problem with your left side? You know, most people will discount the left side because it doesn't hurt as bad as the right. And they want you to know the right hurts. And so it's like, but it does. And so it does cross midline. So right there, first and foremost in the body diagram, I would say, listen, lumbar pain can be at midline. It can be bilateral. So if you really do a thorough job of establishing the body diagram, I think a lot of it, it will eliminate some of the you know, early confusion of, is this really, an, could this be an SI? Could this be a hip? Now, could you have bilateral SI problems or could you have bilateral hip problems? And in 25 years of being a therapist and doing this at a decent level from, I think, most of those, I hope. Um, yeah, sure. I've seen a couple of those, but it's not the common theme, right? So you want to you go with the, you know, I always tell people there, there are very few zebras, right? So don't look for zebras, look for horses. So go with what the, what the odds are best likely. And so midline and across the back, you know, bilateral complaints tend to be lumbar. So that would steer your questions and thoughts there. Um, and if it is truly unilateral and you do establish that it is unilateral, then maybe there is some further consideration there for an SIR or a hip problem. Um, and so, yeah, that's where I would first start at, you know, eliminating those things or considering those things. Um, other things to consider, 
again, going back to the body diagram is, is doing a real good job of establishing if there's any distal symptoms. Um, below the knee is a little more rare. Again, we're talking horses here, not zebras. And so um, below the knee, I would you know, lean more towards a lumbar complaint versus a hip or an SI just from the referral pattern because you can't have a radicular symptom from the lumbar and, and you're not classically gonna have that symptom from SI or hip. And then certainly into the foot or any numbness or tingling, right? So those things would again, steer you towards lumbar versus it being a hip or SI. And so I feel like that's important. And I think there's a lot of early clinicians that don't have the time and the, and, and the experience sitting in with patients and, and establishing the body diagram. They don't do a great job at doing that because they don't want to ask the next question. The next question, they feel like they might be badgering the patient a little bit, you know, and, and I think it's, an, I think it's important, even the subtle things that they may not feel like is important or may not feel like is associated to their complaint may very well be a big part of their complaint. And so I say a lots of times that they say, if they go, okay, it's, it is, I go back to my right low back, my right low back is bothering me. So you, you know, color that in. And you say, is there any other areas, you know, that you had trouble? And they go, well, you know, I have a little bit of pain in my thigh. Okay, well, now the thigh. Okay, does it ever go below the knee? Well, you know, one time last week, I think I felt some things. So then all of a sudden, you go to your treat your own back book and you open up the, you know, a centralization page. And now you've drawn, now your body diagram has changed entirely. So your consideration has changed entirely. So I think it's important to do that. And, um, and so then considering, you know, the bilateral, midline and, and, and bilateral uh, below the knee foot type symptoms those type things are, are really um, strong indicators that you're looking at something lumbar versus the hip and si um let's see what else have i got here um the you know and i guess in history since you're specific with that um at onset I think with, you know, and, and this is a, you know, again, something I, I, I feel like I lean on a decent amount, especially when someone's uh, maybe comes into the clinic thinking SI joint is how did it start? Um, and so typically if you're gonna see that, there's gonna be a, a high prevalence, I think, in that population, if they truly are, to have had some sort of trauma in their past, you know, be it a fall, be it um, an accident, or maybe they've had some recent, um, either, either they are or recently have been pregnant. And so those things, you know, those events like that make that potential of an SI greater. And so, okay, now I'm at least listening, you know, to that, especially with a body diagram that suggests it could be, right? So, yeah, yeah. And so that's, um, those are some of the big key things there. Um, I think with lumbar and then and with hip for sure. Um, you'll see a little bit more of an insidious onset. So if you ask someone how to start, you know, I guess classically you look back and the vast majority of those are going to be, they're not sure, or they may try to come up with a reason why it might be, but it's not really the mm -hmm. true cause and effect. Yeah. So I was just thinking about the session better and, and worse. What makes her pain better and makes worse. Is there any positions or things that make you think more about lumbar or hip or on that session? Um, with lumbar, obviously, you know, with, you know, with what we're, and I'll go back to, cause I'm sitting here as I go through and I typically these things pop up as you go along the location of the complaint too. And this is a body diagram thing. So sorry for going back to that. Um, okay. You know, classically a hip complaint, if you're going to consider that you would figure that you're going to have a groin thigh symptom, not uh, buttocks 
back symptom. You know, that's, that's just not classically what you'll see. So again, trying to differentiate out there. And again, these are, these are things to put into your thought process. These are not definitive things, but the build, the case builds as you go along, right? And so can a yeah. lumbar complaint cause groin pain? Yes. Does an SI joint cause groin pain? Can, right? So that kind of, but it does, you know, if, if it's not in the groin, then I'm, I'm really not thinking a lot about the hip as much so. And I'm not thinking as much about the hip, especially if it's a unilateral, bilateral back, buttocks and groins. So then, I'm, you know, you got to mm-hmm. scream the lumbar out for that. Yeah. So, yeah. so going back to your question, worse, better. Um, I think with lumbar classically, and hopefully most folks that are listening um, to this, you know, the curve reversal from sitting. Right? So you'll sit, flexion is provocative, it's obstructive. The rising is difficult. And so the first few steps are as they move, they feel better. Right. And so a hip can, can be that way. And so identifying where they may feel that stiffness. So when you rise out of the chair and you take those first few steps, if they're not great, those two may sound a lot alike. So I rise, I feel stiff. I, I'm, my first few steps aren't great. And so as I move along, I feel better. So identifying, so, okay, when you rise, where do you feel the stiffness? Is it in your back or is it in your hip or groin area? Right. So identifying that can help you at least get a suggestion towards, is it a hump lumbar or hip potentially? But again, I'll go back and state that, you see growing hip pain that is lumbar that does feel stiff at the hip when they rise yes you do so again you have to differentiate top down lumbar down as to whether you which where your source is at um si joint um when you look at that i, I feel like that you may hear cur- like you may hear pain when you change or transition but i don't feel like you're going to see as much obstruction or stiffness so you may have pain during the motion but maybe not as much obstruction uh, again, I, I feel like that's a classic sound possibly for that. Now, some people may say, mm-hmm. well, I saw a guy or a girl one time that did. It's like, okay, again, what's your vast majority going to look like? And then um, SI joint is loaded. You know, like, so when you load through that joint, just the same as the hip, I think as you make impact to that, and, and commonly, again, this is going with the most common things, a lumbar complaint as you walk and you move further, especially your sagittal plane responders, they feel better. They're on the move. They're going. They feel best. Uh, I feel like peripheral joints, as you ask the peripheral joint to do more of what it's designed to do, that it will perform less and less well, right? So as you know, that joint, if it's not a sound joint, then somewhere along the lines, it will start to become problematic again, right? So it may feel better in the in-between, but there's a limit to that. So just some thoughts, you know, uh, from a peripheral joint perspective. And I know that SI joint classically in our manuals and things is in the other box, right? But again, if you look at it from how it looks on the body, there are two of them and it's somewhat peripheral to the axial joint. So it's, I don't know that it's not the first peripheral joint if you think of it from that perspective. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it again, like the hip, I think as you, as you ask it to do, or a shoulder, if you ask that shoulder to do more of what it's designed to do, I think it performs less and less well if it's the true source of the problem. Yeah, no, that makes sense. A lot of good tips. Um, and I was just thinking while you were talking, relating to uh, my my back pain one time, I had like hip pain for a long time and a lot of weaknesses on, on the thigh, inner thigh and, and glutes and all of that. Uh, going to doctors, that was prior... Uh, being a PT and Mackenzie going to doctor 
And then they saying that was like, that's like a glutes tendinitis or like something like that on the, the muscle. You, you know, when you go, you massage, you stretch, you do all of that. And of course it doesn't help. And then after, when I started doing McKenzie, I was the patient of another uh, clinician. Uh, and, and then we found out my, uh, uh, upper upper back lower thoracic that area there once you pull like you did and and uh, assessed and put the pressure in the right direction then just the, the the strength got back super quick and it's just amazing how these things so it, it, it it looked like a lot was hip but because the symptoms were there but the SARS it wasn't so I think that can be very confusing yeah, and that's a great point too. Um, and, and I know we're not necessarily, you know, looking at or talking about the physical exam piece of it just yet. But you know, when you look at that, um, if you're looking at a complaint that is inconclusive and it's above knee, then I would strongly encourage, you know, looking at the lower thoracic upper lumbar joints. And so I think we again we kind of we do what we see as participants. So you may see one of us on a course and everything is pretty well straightforward. If we can explain it, the patients are improved and it's great. But I think sometimes those that seem the easiest, we learn the least because you don't see a struggle with figuring out where and how we might do that. So I think the upper lumbar joints, lower thoracic joints have, a, have, a, have to be considered for sure, especially in an inconclusive above knee complaint. So if your body diagram is that and it seems to be that and you just are sitting scratching your head, and I would strongly suggest looking at that. I had a um, patient in Nashville, matter of fact, that I was there teaching a course and um, they were scheduled for a labral repair um, for their hip. And it just, I mean, in talking about things like we're talking about, the, the history didn't suggest that it was a hip issue. It just didn't sound like a classic hip issue. So I kept, you know, and, I, and for lack of a better way of putting this, I kept tinkering around with things and you know ended up with upper lumbar and it was an upper lumbar issue with a lateral component oh. and so when i assessed her through mobilization in the upper lumbar lower thoracic joints she could barely stand up off the off the table like it was profound to say the least the change that happened and i thought well now we know right so dramatically worse with mobilization she could barely bear weight through her foot which was key to her that was part of her onset of symptoms and then she needed to be in rotation and flexion to get back to where she could actually move and function and so i don't know whatever happened with that case but you know the question was then well what do i do about my labor repair and i thought i would you know my thought is i would not consider anything structurally surgically necessary until i figured out the lumbar component so you you know so again that was that was a neat experience there and that's been Gosh, that may have been 10 years ago now, it seems, maybe eight. But um, but it was a really neat um, thing to see. I think the participants were surprised. Honestly, as we you know move through time and we do a better job, and I think we all are doing a little better job than we were five years, 10 years ago, we see things like this that help us build on. And um, so that was, a, that was a case that stood out in my head when we knew we were talking about this. So, yeah. Yeah, because... That's, that's what's crazy. I think everybody deserves to have an assessment prior to doing anything structural because then you can find out later that that's not really the case or the back was influencing way more on the symptoms than what well, we thought it was hip or 
mm-hmm. uh, just giving a fair chance to everybody, which doesn't happen all the time. So yeah, that's. And I'm sure with your with your podcast that someone has mentioned or the Expo study that's out there with the axial joint, you know, influence on the peripheral joint complaints. And um, wow, I mean, that's I mean, they I don't think you could find a better you know, validation for that statement you just said. You just just get an unbiased mechanical assessment. Maybe you do need the surgery, but if you do need it, at least go in confidently with an expectation it's going to help you, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So now let's go to the objective exam. Do you have anything else to talk about subjective? No, let me see. Let me look at my list here. Um, I think I covered everything um, that I can think of. Uh, Lumbar. You know, again, you know, by and far, most common is going to be your b- biggest, most common thing. Um, then I would you know, move to hip and then SI as far as the, the what do you see most? Um, and I'll say this too: um, 20 years ago, um, SI was that was what it seemed like everyone came in talking about my SI, my SI, my SI. Maybe it was just a spot or a little, you know, maybe that was my cohort at the time. But um, but current times now. I don't see much as much of a suggestion for that. Um, so I don't know if it's faded somewhat and we feel like we got a better understanding of what it is and how it looks and behaves um, overall in medical or if it's just where I'm living and it's a different cohort. Um, so I don't know, but I don't see as much of that now. I think I spend, uh, if there is a differentiation, I spend most of my time differentiating lumbar and hip. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It doesn't feel that it's as common at least yeah. to have that cases. Occasionally so. courses, there'll be different, like you'll see questions that pop up about the SI joint. It's like, wait a minute, I hadn't had that question in five years, but it's not as common. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when I was doing the course, it was very, like a very sharp part. It was about SI joint. You didn't talk a lot about it and it didn't feel like it was as important. As, yeah. Um, so now about the objective exam. So what are the tests that help you to make the diagnosis? Um, okay, so again, I think that, and this is this, the biggest part of this is an inconclusive lumbar exam, right? So I, I hear a problem, I think I understand that problem. I'm gonna look for baselines for that problem, which again, you may see loss of motion at the hip, which is, you know, would be the one thing that you would expect to even consider there being a hip or an SI issue is that I would need to see something that suggests that joint could potentially be at fault. So I would need that baseline to be there. If someone's hip moves fully well and there's no complaint there, then it's, that's probably not the joint, right? It's, we need to look harder where we were at. But an inconclusive lumbar exam, I think, is the part that um, we miss most. And so the history would suggest a certain scenario. The physical exam, again, would probably show, I would expect some obstruction to movement or loss of motion there to be concordant to their, their history, their, their complaint, and then testing through the, the lumbar. Now, again, if you test through the lumbar and you think, okay, this looks and smells like it could be lumbar, but then it turns out that it's not, and then going to those baselines you established at the hip would be my next move. So what do those baselines have to do with their complaint? So then I would consider looking at the hip and then lastly, looking at the SI, but the inconclusive lumbar exam. And some people say, well, what does that look like? Um, I think that again, first and foremost, that they would be, they would, if you 
if you feel like you have a joint that's at fault, so let's say it's the lumbar um, component, there should be some sort of influence. I feel like if you have someone, let's just say you test them for 48 hours, 72 hours, whatever, if they're doing something that you're, you're having them do every couple of hours and they're doing hundreds of reps over time, if they come back and they say, oh, same, okay, that's that same is like, okay, I, I mean, I, be worse, but not the same, right? So something should change if you're moving the joint, um, you know, that, that, that needs to be moved, I think. So at that point, I would consider progression of force, right? So I might look at, you know, clinician overpressure mobilization, and I might look at different levels, right? So I just mentioned lumbar lower versus mid versus upper, and then reassess those baselines. If I'm moving through that progression of force and I'm still inconclusive, then I'm going to move out to the hip and I'm going to assess what repeated movements might do for that. And so again, differentiation lumbar, if you choose to test it, if you got time for that, you can spend a visit. I would, you know, find what I think might be our best likely look at that, whether it be extension or flexion, I would have them on, you know, on task for that and any postural changes you might need. And then looking for confirmation, which is again, one of those things I see young therapists make the mistake of is, oh, I had them do some extension or I had them do some flexion. And the first question that you might get asked, I know by me would be why, you know, so what are you looking for? What do you expect to happen? And what are you going to do with that information when it comes back to you? So, you know, okay, I think that I have a lumbar derangement. It sounded like that in the history. It looked like that in the physical exam. And so I sent them out testing for me because I didn't have a, a strong confirmation in the clinic. Okay, then great. Then when they come back and they say I'm the same, now what do you do, right? Because you didn't get I'm better and you didn't get confirmation you're right. So now we got to do, you got to continue to sort this out. So progression of force, yellow light, right? Proceed with caution, but those people need to be better understood. So that would lead to clinician overpressure, you know, to a mobilization or maybe a change in direction to get better clarity. So if you extended them, you might flex them. If you flex them, you might extend them. But either way, you got to start to doubt or, or challenge your thought process because you don't have confirming information. Um, so move out to the hip again. There's a, a loss of motion there. Then I would you know, move to the hip next and I would start to repeat, move that to in range and then reassess baselines symptomatically, mechanically, functionally. And so that would be how that would work through. So the algorithm, I think, in our text, our manuals is, you know, lumbar confirmation, yes or no. Okay, you know, if yes, proceed with lumbar. If no, then consider hip. Okay, I move the hip. The hip doesn't give me the answer. Now look at SI, right? So you work through that that way. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. And then let's throw the SI John in the middle. So okay. how, how would you test? Middle, Ariana. <laughs> it is in the middle, right? I my kids would say that's a bad so not funny, right? It is, it is literally in the middle. Yeah. That's right. So, I, I, you know, the, I think the easy thing here is I think it's been, I, and, you know, if you look at our, um, at the, you know, the OCS, the material they present there and say, what do you do with the SI? What does that mean? What would you look at as being, you know, uh, good evidence that you have an SI joint problem? And that's Laslett's test. And so, you know, distraction, gapping, posterior shear, thigh thrust, um, compression, sacral, uh, sacral thrust. I've got my stuff over here in my, in my book I'm looking at now. And so if you look at those tests and you have those tests and you show, um, you know, I think three or five of those positive, if you get, pro they're sort of provocative tests. So they should be concordantly painful, right? So you got to, you've got to, um, 
inconclusive lumbar, you haven't found your answer in the hip, I'm going to go ahead and, and do these provocative tests. So remember, they got to be concordantly painful, meaning that you have to reproduce that client's, that patient's pain that they came with. So you can't do, you know, a distraction gapping test and, and get a completely different symptom. And that symptom, you, know, you consider that to be positive, it has to be their complaint, right? And so challenging the, you know, through those things. And, and so if you get those tests and you start to see that you have some positive tests, then there you may find that you have an SI joint problem. And if you do confirm that, again, classification is key, right? We talk about that derangement, dysfunction, posture. And I think, you know, by and far, you're going to see mostly derangements, right, out of those classifications. And so if you, if you start to do those things, even in your test, if you look at, um, if you look at um, Gainsland's test, pelvic torsion, which I left that off. So um, if you look at that pelvic torsion test, a lot of times you can start to see or appreciate a directional preference for that. So you'll get a, a posterior rotation or an anterior rotation suggestion that might, that might be your movement, right? And so through the exam of the using those tests, those provocative tests, um, you may start to see or realize that there's a directional preference for that joint just the same. And then it's just a matter of figuring out the load, whether it's a unloaded, partial load or fully load, loaded test that you need. Um, and so, or repeated movement. And so the, um, the, the, the Laslitz tests are, are the ones we lean on. We all teach them. We all use them. Um, if you ask me, Gary, when's the last time you used those exam, those tests in an inconclusive lumbar or hip, then I would tell you, I can't remember, right? Because I can't remember when that's last happened. Now, maybe you could say, well, Gary, you're just missing a bunch of them. Okay. That's fair. Maybe that's true. I, I don't feel like it's true, but it might be. Um, but I will say that I do use those tests sometimes when people, if I have the rare occasion come in and they say, I have an SI joint problem. And they're in the narrative that they give you is I have an SI joint problem. I've had this SI joint problem for years. My doctor says I have an SI joint problem. Then I'll say, I will, I will lead into that by going straight to those tests, right? Knowing that they can be false positive and then assess the lumbar spine and reassess the test. If the tests are then now negative, then they don't have an SI joint problem. They have a lumbar problem. So I manipulate the information and in, in sort of a, in, in reverse to get the patient away from, Hey, my SI joint. Yeah. To a, okay, maybe I need to consider this lumbar thing, right? Good strategy. I like that because if we, if we do our rationale and start, let's start with the back to eliminate the back as the SARS. A lot, of, a lot of times the patients don't like and they want you to go straight to where they think it's the problem. So, yeah, so go to it, right? Yeah. So here's my yeah. problem. Okay, well, let's test that. Okay, we got these and here's the test we're going to use. So we, And I use a dry erase board a lot. And so I would write those tests on there. Right. So they know here's what we're going to do. And yeah. I would check the ones that are positive and then I would have them repeat a movement lumbar and then go back and retest. If they're negative, it's like, okay, these are now negative and that was what did it. So, you know, there's our reasoning, right? Yeah. So in the SI joint, uh, what would be the most common direction if you got a derangement would also be extension? Oh man. I, you know, I think I would probably gamble to say that's true. So some degree of, you know, partial to full load, you know, extension, of course, that looks a lot like your hip extensions, you know, that yeah. you see in our manual and the text and the treats are on, on hip. And so, yeah, I think you'd probably see that being a, a very common one. Um, yeah. and I, and I think it stands to reason just the same. The clinical reasoning behind it's like, why? Well, you know, if I were to put my foot on a brake and have an accident, right, then 
that I'm going to be posteriorly rotated once that impact happens, or if I fall onto my knee, same thing. You you could you know clinically reason through that why why that may be the case. Yeah. So let's say comparing lumbar hip and SI joint in your experience in your practice, how uh, let's say percentage of each that you see happening, how would you divide that? As far as the, what percentages break that it you down? see. Yeah. So for example, you see, um, how often do you see back cases versus hip and versus SI joint? Yeah. Um, all right. So we're going to, we're going to, you got to put one more thing on that. And that is we're okay. assuming all our derangements, right? So you're yeah. saying. Yeah. Right, yeah. So, so you can compare the same. Yeah. So, yes. we're, so we're apples to apples. Um, gosh, 80% are lumbar. 15% are, and I'm going to probably get in trouble for this. <laughs> this <laughs> is your my, practice, this not, is not my, by the books, yeah. your practice, yeah. your experience. So, so let's um, release the pressure. <laughs> I, I would say, you know, and maybe I shouldn't be so precise, 70, 80 probably percent are going to be lumbar. You know, uh, I'd say 10 to 20% are going to be hip, and then the remaining are going to be um, SI. And again, that, that's, I think that's a little more fair and conservative, so it doesn't get so many people riled up maybe. Um, but that's, I, I just don't see a ton of that. And again, it could just be my population. Um, if I saw a ton of motor vehicle stuff, um, or if I, you know, switched out and I did some, um, pre or postpartum stuff, then maybe I would see some different things there too. Yeah. Maybe it's yeah. also the population you are seeing that the, the specific sure. population that is not MVA, motor vehicle accidents is not right. like mo mostly trauma, uh, not pregnant ladies and all this population that are more likely to have that kind of problems. Right. Yeah. So. And they, um, and I think it's, you know, I think it's important too. And I, I said this earlier and, and I, and I, tr and I hope people understand this, you know, our assessment, our NDT assessment and the person that's using it, hopefully they'll, they'll be as unbiased as any person you have ever met when you, when you see that person. So we don't really care what, what it is, right? We just want to understand it. And so, you know, when, you know, I try to be as unbiased as possible. I'm the, I'm the one that's going to be the most doubtful person in the room. Like, I don't know that that changed you. Can you prove me right or prove that to me that you're different? So, and you'll see that in a lot of us where it's like, okay, are you better, worse or same? I'm better. How? So I'm not, it's not good enough just to tell me that. So how do you feel like you're better? So, prove me that that's true so that we're remaining biased and we're challenging the baselines because that's the key to this assessment is that you can't be biased the same thing if they say i'm the same and then you test and they are moving way better but they are still feeling pain so in their minds they are the same but then you go and test and you see that they're actually better but they don't realize right. that and they're but then again their impression of how they are is the most yeah. important impression so it's like okay listen yeah. you know, until your words are different we got to keep going here and figure this out so yeah 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 and so I, I and i say that because as a young therapist myself i'll put the clinical mirror in front of myself you know i can remember before i got into this that i have an influence towards there being a very very high prevalence rate of si joint pain and I can remember fighting with my internal self about that because I thought, well, this is what I've been taught. This is what I know. And so what I learned there and just looking back and looking at myself is I was very biased to that diagnosis. So, or that joint. So you just got to remain impartial. 
and use the assessment. The assessment's the true um, factor in that. So let the assessment take you there. Yeah. And sometimes it can be difficult just because you know the high prevalence of certain things and then you want to assume that is that right away, but right. you got to be careful. That's right. Um, anything else you want to talk about the hip, SA joint, and back before we move on? Um, trying to think here. Anything you can think of that I may have left off? Um, or I tried to be. Um, no, because the other questions I had, you already answered. That I was like before assessing the hip, do you exclude the back as the as the source first? So you already kind of say the yes, right? You you exclude right. the back first, and then if uh, nothing changed, then you go and assess the hip. Um, same thing we assay joint, unless you have the patient, as you mentioned about the having the SI joint as the main complaint. So you want to just go straight to the source. But other than that, it looks like the, the, the rationale is always exclude the back first and then go to hip and SI joint, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think that's, and I'm just, and there's a reference in our manual I'm just looking at right now. And it's, you know, this is the last, you know, last study It's the McKinsey classification system with a cluster of SI joint provocative uh, provocation tests showed excellent sensitivity and specificity values for the diagnosis of SI joint related pain. That's Laslett 2008. Um, and, the, and so that's the reference and that's in the Journal of Manual Manipulative Therapy. And, um, and so that again has, you know, I think that, so that's been pretty much the standard of things for a long time is, is that, you know, again, inconclusive lumbar exam. And so that's, that's our, you know, we're, that's our strength. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so if you don't see a lot of SI joint and when you see probably most are derangement, what would be the odds to have a uh, dysfunction or like postural and, and, and uh, SI joint? And I think it's just like the rest. I mean, you know, it's, it drops off significantly. So if you think about, you know, how often do you see dysfunction in the lumbar spine? How often do you see dysfunction in the hip? How often do you see yeah. dysfunction in the SI? Those numbers dramatically drop off as you go along, right? Mm -hmm. And so I wouldn't even, I, I would be afraid to even put a number on that. It would yeah. be rare, I think. And so, again, be careful about, again, you know, choosing one, any diagnosis for that matter, because it's something you just can't figure out, right? Oh, well, it must be this because it's not doing what I think it should do, you know, because it's not a derangement. There are other things. I mean, and I probably, if you said, okay, well, we'll do you, and speaking of other, if you said, how many other classifications do you see when we get to the peripheral joint, i.e. hips or shoulders that are structurally compromised? So you do have labral tears. You do have OA, you know, um, effects, things like that, where the joint is just structurally compromised. And so I probably see a, a greater diagnosis of other and peripheral joint stuff than I might see as dysfunction versus derangement just you know so i think there's that to consider i think the fourth classification we have which you know classically people know it for three derangement dysfunction posture i think the other box is probably where our strengths lie because we're really differentiating against a lot of the other medical diagnoses that come in that box as well yeah good point um so now let's talk about the mckenzie courses so i know yeah. you've been teaching them virtually so how has been the experience so far 
you know, it's, I think it's been really good. I, you know, I, you know we, we, it's been, a, I think you hear people talk about um, assembling a plane while you're in flight. Uh, I think Stacy and the folks in Syracuse would agree that that seems to be the case. We've been trying to do this along the way as a necessity, as much so as anything. And I, man, our faculty, it, it's been amazing because I think we've all learned a little bit about each other and it's all been positive. I mean, we've worked, we've done it together. So we've had two instructors on each course, which I think is, you know, good for the participants because you're getting two folks at the same time and getting their thoughts and their feedbacks and feedback. And usually someone's available. We got question answer stuff online. Um, the interactions have been like this. So we've been doing it virtually. And, and although the boxes are much smaller when you have 25 or 30 people, um, I think that uh, it, It'll, it allows an interaction that maybe we take for granted or think that is a better scenario face-to-face -face because some people just genuinely just don't like to ask questions. But a lot of it's been the chat box. So there's a chat box feature. And so we encourage people you know, to ask questions throughout. And so they, I, think, I think we get more interaction that way because it doesn't seem to be, you know, there's one person really, really comfortable with asking questions and someone in the back that could care less. The person that care less, you know, they may feel like, hey, I got a question. I'm like, okay, this is actually okay. I'll ask that question. And so you get a little bit more broader in participation, I think, somewhat. And I maybe, you know, maybe I'm making that up, but I feel like that's the that's the way it yeah. works. So the chat, you know, has worked really well. Um, I think the time frame for people to process the courses is a is a good thing because the weekends are really fast. You know, this, you know, you go for your three or four day course, you know, you walk in. It starts as a volume of information that you get in that in that time frame, and you're seeing patients being assessed, and you're trying to put that into your own clinical you know experience when you go back so that you can apply it when you get home. And it's like, wow, that's a lot. And then when you're driving home or flying home, it's like, wow, okay, okay, this I got it, I got it. And then you show up on money, it's like, okay, maybe I don't have it. If you're doing the course online, you have a you know have a month of time, give or take, to read re-listen to podcasts that were recorded by our faculty on different topics. And so they, you know, so, okay, we're going to talk about SI joint. Well, I'll, I want to listen to that again. So I'm going to, you know, listen to that podcast again, listen to the podcast again. Um, or if it's something about differentiation between uh, differentiation, maybe it's something about uh, derangements and hips or derangements and knees. And you want to listen to that again, you can take your time. You can, you know, listen to it and then, um, so I think the processing of the information, because it is such a volume of things and a different way of, of learning, teaching, I mean, of understanding things that I think that people have had a chance to do that. Now, lab has been a little difficult, uh, you know, be full disclosure, it's hard, uh, you know, to not be standing over someone going, hey, if you put your hands like this, that'll go better, right? This is the way we want to do it. So that's been a bit of a challenge to get that just right. So there's strengths and shortfalls, I suppose, but overall it's been a really good experience. And I think the participation has been really good. Um, we've, I've had the opportunity to do one exam this year and there was a couple three people that had um, completed their C and D courses virtually. And, and they, everyone on the, on that exam passed, like, so they passed as well. So it seemed as if, okay, well, you, you know, you understood what the, the technique was and you did well with it. So, you know, and, and be honest with you, it's the practice time you put in anyway, right? So we can yeah. teach, it, but reality is when you go home, you got to teach it, you got to yeah. practice it. So, but it seems like it went, it's going well. I mean, really, 
I wasn't, I wasn't convinced. I wasn't convinced Gary could do that to be quite honest with you. So I wasn't sure that I was, I was the material for online things. And so, but it's been really a, a great learning experience and creating new ways to learn. So it's been fun. I think all of us have gotten better for it. Yeah. It's just, you have to find a way to adapt. You can't just stop. So everybody's having to try to figure out how to get this done. And then I think it's even us, we get surprised by the results, like doing telehealth or teaching virtually. As you said, I think it's very valuable, the, the, the ability that you have to listen again, because it's a lot to process at once. And mm -hmm. then you try to like make, like write notes and write down everything, but you, you don't have the time to absorb everything. So right. I think it's amazing this ability that you have to listen again. And some people take a little longer to get all the information because it's a lot. And we know every time we take a course, we learn more and more and something else that you didn't catch it before. And that's how it is every time you, you, you learn something new because you can't get it all at once. So I think sure. listening, it helps a lot. You, you being able to listen to, to the explanation again, or like I said, the podcast and uh, things. And I would agree with the question because probably people get intimidated on the room, people that are shy or not, they don't are comfortable with speaking up and they have the questions that they are afraid of asking. So having the chat, that makes a lot easier. So yeah. I think it's um, for sure our positive sides and as you said, negative points that will be better in person. But like overall, I think you get the job done, as you said, and um, people are able to understand and apply and even having this time frame I think it helps because I remember when I first started with so much information and you go back to your patients and you start doing it's like yeah that's not working like you feel like you feel like okay I got this and then you start doing it it's like so what and what now uh, right. so in the beginning I think it's um, very important that you have more time to process everything yeah. um, and I was just going to ask you the structure is it still the same or did you have to change the structure of the cars because it's being virtual? No, it's um, it's pretty well the same setup. I think with the um, uh, Part D, I think I know Part D starts out as um, extremity, and and but you know we've talked and discussed that as far as being a potential change on the big picture of things anyway to to incorporate that earlier in the course and and quite honestly I've taught it that way live as well. And I think it works out really well for the weekend because then the discussion changes sort of an open forum for, you know, whatever you have questions about from waist down or from neck out, that kind of works for the next four days. Right. So I think that, you know, that change is not really a, uh, um, anything major. I think it's actually a good, good opportunity to bring that up early. And, um, but as far as structurally goes, um, you know, the podcast are sectioned out, you got certain obligations for the first, you know, two or three weeks or one or two weeks. And then you have a live sync session, and then you'll have new assignments. It'll be the next, you know, three or four. And then you'll have another, you know, sync session. And then the last sync session <clears throat> in all the courses is a manual, um, you know, part of the course where you would, you know, we, you know, it's kind of hard to obligate someone that's maybe not involved to be available. But we try to encourage people to have a model so they can do the techniques and we can critique them. You'd be surprised how, you know, it's 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 not that hard for us to watch. Yeah. and say do this try this change that you know and and it still work and so yeah you, you know those and it but the hard part there is finding somebody that's really available for you know a couple hours to help you yeah. out 
right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but, but no, it's the structure's been you know good, and uh, and I think the biggest thing is, is like this is we all sort of um, hunger for that interaction and feedback and and that process to learn and stuff, and so um, to continue to be able to do that's been fun because last year when things shut down. I didn't realize how important it was to do that to me personally. I mean, it was a big deal. It's like, okay, there's a large part of me missing now. I got to do this. So it's been fun. And is the Institute having uh, presential courses right now or is it all virtual? Everything you have in person? There, there is a live part A this weekend going on. Yoav is teaching. Oh, and yeah, I, I saw him posting. Around. Yeah, and yeah, no, yeah, right. <laughs> Surprise there, right? Um, <laughs> And I think it's around New Orleans. And I think there's one in West Virginia. I think Hugh is doing, um, I was trying to think if there's anything else live. I think those are the, and then we've got a couple of exams that are, are, are um, that are full currently. We just had an exam last week. Matter of fact, I think Dave and Scott did that. And then there's another one coming up sometime. And, but I think there's some, as people are, I think getting a little more okay with travel and being in uh, a face-to-face environment, I think we're trying to, to work towards, you know, reinstating some of that stuff, you know, going into the end of the year, first of the year, hopefully. Um, so we'll see, hopefully it works out that way and folks will be ready. And the ones that don't really care for the, the, the online you know, part, they'll come be live or maybe people like to do a little bit both ways and they do one course one way and another course the, you know, another way. So, you yeah. know, I think having both, I think we'll always keep that, um, that option. option because it's been a, I think it's really been, uh, pretty amazing what was put together in a very short period of time so yeah yeah that's amazing uh, congratulations for all the faculty that are putting the effort and doing um that happen so the the show must continue you got it yeah as long <laughs> as there's demand we'll be there right yeah yeah uh, so. so let's transition to our final questions what is your favorite source of information do you have any paper or anything books anything in particular um, I, you know, I, I, I like to lean on things that are, you know, um, I think that are, are solid research papers and some of the you know, ones that are, have been produced recently have been the expo study is one of those things, um, uh, that I referenced a lot, especially in the environment I'm in now. And I didn't, um, elaborate on that, but I work in Athens, Georgia. So, you know, this time of the year it's go dogs, right? We play, you know, the Van, Vanderbilt this weekend in your neck of the woods, and, um, and so, um, Expos is a big one that I referenced the Hans van Helfert study for injections against environment that I'm in trying to help steer people where their next move might be. Um, those two papers are, I think can talk about a lot. And then of course, Audrey Long study, people would say, well, it's out of date. It's not current. The, does it matter which exercise, but <laughs> that studies so well, um, uh, so done so well and and the outcomes of that study is so prevalent even today or are relevant today it's like okay that's that's a go-to thing so if someone says hey i need to read something what i'll read it's like you got to read audrey's study if you haven't read that study you need to get it and read it if you're going to do mdt because it's a it's a great one to have too so those three studies are, are some that I, I talk about a lot um even with patients uh, because the humility in this is i don't know what your problem is but i can give you your best likely chance of how we might proceed. So I'll talk to patients about the studies and the fact that they help steer us in their current. So, yeah, no, that's and, amazing. And my, Good. And I'll say this, that my, my, my favorite 
my favorite go-to thing in the clinic that I use, and, I, and this is, I guess I learned it on my diploma program, is I use, I, when I talk about I'm talking to my patients, I'm writing these things down on a dry erase board. I, that is the number one thing in the clinic that I can't do without is, you know, using that dry erase board to put information on because it's just like teaching class. You can hear it, see it, process it. The more times you can see it or more ways you see it and have that, the better off you are, the better chance you're going to you know, remember it. So do a lot it's of the that. the teaching inside you that you apply to all your patients, all your just students. <laughs> you have to have the board and the That's old right. style. That's good. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and what would be the best advice that you can give to clinicians that are starting their careers? Oh, wow. Um, you know, um, I, I, I gave this advice to someone a few years back and I, and I, my, I encouraged them, you know, to find a mentor and be an expert. And so that, that advice to me is, you know, find something that feels right and, and see it through, right. Find someone to help steer you through those things because you will have questions and you'll have obstacles and you'll have things that'll try to distract, distract you and steer you away from that course. And to have people that you trust to help you get through that stuff is, is super, super important. And so I think that, um, I think that would be kind of it is just, you know, find what feels right to you and, and be the best at it you can. Yeah. And what personal qualities and abilities that you think are important to become a successful PT? Ooh, you love people, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, 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 and variety, I think, cause you get a lot of different personalities, um, and, and again, with that, I think time and patience and, and willingness to continue to, to challenge yourself is important because, you know, um, the, you know, I jokingly say all the, all the time, the first time is always the first time. Well, if you're, if you're going about it in the same fashion, then you can go off of that first time, the second time, the third time, the fourth time, the fifth time. So you're drawing off of your experience based on one foundational thing. And so if you have a good solid assessment and you stay with that assessment, then I think that, um, that you're going to have better success that way. So, um, you know, uh, I think experience being patient, challenging yourself, um, never being satisfied, that kind of stuff, um, will keep you, keep you having fun. You know, every, you know, work is work. It always will be, and there's going to be good and bad days, but the vast majority of what you do has to be exciting. I think. Yeah. Getting the, 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 the challenge and feeling you're able to help people live right. better. So I think that's really motivating. Right. Um, so Gary, if people want to learn more about you or if they want to contact you, uh, is there a way that they can uh, reach out? Sure. Um, the website, I'll steer you towards that. It's the best, you know, it's a great resource for anyone looking for anything as far as MDT stuff goes, but we're on there. My, my personal email address is there, gwdykes. 40 at yahoo.com. Um, that's probably the best thing. Make sure you put something in the subject box, you know, because I'll trash it if not. Um, and so the email is probably the best thing. Um, and again, from a resource, learn more about me. We have bio things on there. I mean, yeah, I, I, I jokingly say I'm just an old farm boy from when I grew up. And so uh, I'm not sure there's a lot, not more to learn for me. I think that's as far as like about me, but, um, but if anybody's got any questions or things like that, I don't do a lot of social media things and that's all by choice. Um, so you won't find me like Yoav on social media. Um, and so uh, maybe if you send Yoav a message, he can relay that message to me. Maybe that would work. Right. <laughs> so, um, 
but yeah, so the, but the email stuff kind of old fashioned that way. And I keep the other stuff to a minimum. Yeah. Social media is nice, but it's overwhelming. Is yeah, yeah. Just can't yeah. do it. It's like, okay, <laughs> do I have that moment in my life today now to do that. No, I do not. So yeah. It right. requires a lot of time. So you can yeah. get lost very easily there. And for that reason, I'll thank you for putting your time and effort into that because <laughs> we need folks to do that. And so, yeah, I really appreciate your time and effort that you put in as well. Yeah, thank you. So I appreciate you taking the time to um, talk to us today and um, help us with all this uh, very nice information, uh, super helpful. And I just appreciate it. Thank you so much. And hope yep. you have a good weekend. You too. Thank you much. Questions, suggestions, or topics you want to hear about, talk to me on ptprotalk.com. Join our email list to receive updates and new episodes and subscribe here. Tell your friends about it and be sure to share. Also, leave us a review and let us know what you think. We are going to publish today's video recording on my YouTube channel, so you can check the link out in the show notes. Thanks for joining us and I'll see you next time.